We'll take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we will be there in about 20 minutes. This morning and the next Lord's Day morning, I'm going to take a short break from Matthew's Gospel to address what I consider a truly delightful and encouraging topic. We're going to look at joyful generosity revisited. We're doing this to remind us as a church body what God values in a local church and to continue to embolden all of us together to stay faithful, to continue the work that God has so graciously begun in us as a local church body. And so if you would allow me a moment, I'd like to take some time to simply reflect first on the church in general and then on where our church has been in recent years. The church really is an amazing institution. If you think about what the church is, it's very simply that God takes a few qualified shepherds, he providentially places some sheep around them in their spiritual care, and as this group meets regularly on the Lord's Day and other times during the week, over a period of years, this group becomes the pillar and the foundation of the truth. They are carriers of the Word of God. They are carriers of the Gospel. Their lives are sanctified, made more and more like Christ. And as this happens, others come to faith in Christ. We become bonded to one another as the family of God. Our, our bonds become so strong that even as our children grow up together, some end up marrying, forming families of their own. Many of you met your current spouses in this body of believers. We become very bonded as a church family. We encourage one another toward Christ-likeness. We sing the hymns and the songs of our faith countless times to the glory of God and for our own comfort and solace. We, we comfort one another. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to each other. We recount and reenact the gospel through the Lord's table regularly together. We eat the feast of the word of God together. If you attend Sunday school, if you're in a small group, if you go to other events we sponsor, if you come to both services on Sundays, you're seated at that Feast of the Bible some 200 times a year in our church. Here's the irony. There's really nothing special about any of us. We're just a group of regular people. And yet as a whole, we see the Lord moving and doing and blessing and using this body of believers. We're, we're like the Corinthian church that Paul characterized as not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. But Paul's point wasn't to be denigrating or to cut them down. It was to give all glory to God because he goes on to say that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And just in case you're wondering what the foolish things and the weak things are, it's us. It's us. We don't exist for our own sake. Grace Bible Church doesn't exist to simply perpetuate Grace Bible Church. And I've said this before, I, I think it's kind of funny that churches name themselves like a football team. You know, hey, we're Grace Bible Church, here's our flag, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, we're the believers who meet on White Lane we don't exist for our own sake. We don't exist to perpetuate ourselves. And yet, by God's grace, 
Countless lives have been changed by the fact that we just gather together. The church is amazing. My personal experience has been that the local church tends to have a personality of sorts, a characteristics that, that kind of make up that local body. And as a church, just like our individual Christian lives, we're a work in progress. I think I can confidently say that most, if not all of you, want to be discipled. Most, if not all of you, are eager for Christ-likeness, even for correction in order to please and worship our Savior. Sometimes a sheep goes astray, and we do our best to remind that one of the calling of the gospel. But as a church, here's what I've discovered. Here's what I've experienced as your pastor for the past ten and a half years or so. This has been your personality. Here are the things you've demonstrated. You've demonstrated spiritual hunger. And I could spend hours talking about this and giving examples. One was recent. I did a focus group a few months ago to test the waters on the idea of doing a several-year-long series on the theology of the millennial reign of Christ and all the doctrinal implications around that massive issue. And, And you, as a group, overwhelmingly supported taking that journey together, which we just began recently. You love the preached word at a level I've never seen before, I've never experienced before. You, you come to a, a full Lord's Day. You have your teens hearing expository preaching on Thursday nights. You come to men's events, to women's events, to Steadfast Bible Conference. Anything we do, you come to. You have a tremendous capacity to absorb truth. It's not unusual that I have the privilege of preaching for an hour, which, by the way, for the record, by Puritan standards, is very short. So, just so we're clear on that. But I'm not nervous about that. In our culture, that's almost unheard of. And yet, I see desire, I see attentiveness in your faces. You are spoken to by the Lord and His marvelous Word, and you keep coming back. You, you never say, I need one half-hour sermon a week, and so I'll come every other week since it averages out. You've demonstrated spiritual hunger. You've demonstrated self-examination. Your responsiveness to the preached word to examine your hearts, your lives, your words, to humble yourselves, to actively pursue Christ's likeness, it's, it's thrilling. I know it's pleasing to the head of the church. A number of weeks ago, I preached on being peacemakers, and numbers of you informed me of a decision to pursue peace in a damaged or broken relationship. I think not a week goes by that someone doesn't let me or one of our elders know how he's actively responding to the preached word of God. You've demonstrated love for one another. Our member care ministry, that's the official arm of the church, caring for each other in terms of basic needs and helping each other. But I can recount instance after instance of kindness within the body of Christ, within the church. I've lost track of the number of times where I've heard of guests or newer attendees marveling at how they were loved when they arrived. And that's a question I, I like to ask somebody their first time here when I have the privilege of meeting them. Have you felt fed the word of God and have you felt warmly welcomed? And some have responded, I, I didn't think I'd get out of here. You have loved one another. You've demonstrated concern beyond our walls. For the size of church we are, we, we support quite a number of missionaries at a very high level 
We have some missionaries, believe it or not, for whom Grace Bible Church is their highest supporting church. Our website is visited by people all over the world just for its content. Recently, I conducted a a group meeting with several dozen of you to explore expanding our media outreach with our Steadfast in the Faith media ministry and the overwhelming consensus was that we have a responsibility beyond these four walls, that there is a world out there that's dying and needs to hear the Word of God. And of course, countless times, many of you have told me, pray for me, I'm bringing an unbelieving family member to church next week. And my drive to proclaim the gospel is heightened all the more. I've heard that so many times, you don't even have to tell me anymore. I assume it's going to happen every week. You've demonstrated servants' hearts. Nearly every one of you is involved at one level or another in the ministry, as it should be. You're you're teaching children, you're cleaning the church, you're leading small groups, you're singing and playing instruments, you're serving for special events. You've established a culture that you live your lives in the church and for the sake of Christ. We have been so blessed here. We, we don't suffer under the what the, some call the 20% rule where 20% do all the work and 80% watch. It's really the other way around here and it's been a phenomenal thing to watch. You've demonstrated love of the gospel. How you love the doctrines of grace. And that's thrilling to me. You marvel at the sovereignty of God to save lost sinners. You love the fact that we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is revealed in the scriptures alone to the glory of God alone. You love these facts. You never tire of hearing the cross, of the cross. You never tire of hearing of the glorious resurrection of Christ, the ascension, the fact that he is even now interceding for us at, at, at the Father's right hand, that he's returning someday to consummate the gospel. You never tire of being reminded of your regeneration, the very gift of faith that was given to you and the astounding miracle that God would save you and save me while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies. You've demonstrated a love for the gospel. And you've demonstrated generosity. I first encountered this generosity when I first came to Grace Bible Church, a very small, a very fragile, little tiny church. And you went to Herculean efforts to bring me here, including some of you stepping up to personally pay off some debts that the church had incurred Prior to that, our building on Young Street had an unfinished upstairs that we needed to teach our children the gospel. We didn't have a space to teach children, but we had the unfinished upstairs. Some of you remember that. We needed $70,000 to finish that. And for our little bitty church, we said, okay, we're going to, the elders planned a a campaign. We're going to really uh, work hard at this. We're going to preach and we're going to start a capital campaign. And, And it went terribly The capital campaign went so bad because before we started, you gave $70,000, and so it ruined everything at that moment. (laughs) A couple of you, we actually said, can you hang on to that to give the rest of the church opportunity to participate? When most churches go down a certain traditional path of bringing on paid staff, we went down a much less traditional route, believing from Scripture that our music worship is of paramount importance, second only to the preached word of God. And so when the elders presented you the possibility of bringing to Bakersfield a certain delightful Canadian, 
in the matter of a couple of weeks, you gave a year's salary to demonstrate your love for the word of God proclaimed in song. Since then, you've generously added to our ranks a student ministries pastor, a full-time director of technology, whom I nicknamed Pastor of Evangelism because he reaches more people than all of us combined with his web and social media efforts, a Spanish ministry pastor to continue the work begun by volunteers. We have two staff members who are completely volunteer. They donate their time. They act as full-time ministry workers, our pastoral intern over men's ministry and our elder and executive pastor. Early in my time at Grace Bible Church, we felt like it was time to just dip our toes in the water with a small capital campaign to build up some funds for whatever the Lord might do in the future. We, we dubbed it our more than a building campaign. And without even a clear direction of what the Lord might do, you gave over $200,000 simply just to put in the bank. And this was when we were very small. In January of 2017, a few leaders began simply talking about the future of our facility situation, having conversations to think about the fact that our current situation on Young Street really wasn't sustainable, probably wasn't the best use of the Lord's funds as we were paying extremely high rent for a small facility which we were outgrowing quickly. We knew we couldn't save money to outpace inflation, especially the way elections are going recently. We, we knew that in our efforts to purchase the Young Street facility, we were met with opposition and outlandish uh, uh, prices at every effort. We literally would wait a year just to hear a response to an email or a text. So we, since that wasn't the Lord's direction for us, the collective wisdom of the men involved in these series of conversations prayerfully continued to demonstrate that something needed to be done. The conversation grew to include more of our leadership and even some of our church members, which we used as a focus group of sorts. We continued these conversations for over a year at various levels. This group of leaders and other concerned church members all agreed that we should utilize the services of a consultant to help us be very strategic while trusting the Lord. And in fact, many of those on that informal team personally donated the money to fund that consultant. We brought to our aid Dr. Rod Rogers, who is now a friend of our ministry, is a veteran pastor and veteran of many building campaigns, and he provided some really important and tactical help for us. We formed a more permanent team to head up this effort to have the main goal to make certain that we as a church are motivated by that which is heavenly, that which is eternal, that which is, is glorious, that which is directed to our hearts rather than just drooling over the possibility of a nice or an impressive church campus for its own sake. And so the team crafted what they called the Joyful Generosity capital campaign, addressing the attitude and state of the hearts of all of us as members, hearts for the gospel and hearts to have as big an impact as possible before Christ returns. And as part of this campaign, I wanted to prepare us spiritually by being reminded of what a church that's Christ-honoring, Christ-exalting, Christ-focused is all about. And so just before Christmas of 2018, I began a short series on the Church of Jerusalem that we simply called Our Gift to Jesus. That in a season in which we give gifts to one another, I wanted to highlight what gifts the church was to give to our Savior. What type of church were we to be? We held our annual celebration banquet on January 25th of 2018. 
We unveiled our full plan for joyful generosity. The very next Sunday, I began preaching the biblical theology of sacrificial giving. We called that series also Joyful Generosity. We did children's lessons on the topic. We did all of our small groups on the topic. Our Sunday school classes were on the topic. For seven Sundays, we immersed ourselves in what it means to be a joyfully generous church. And then we put an exclamation point on that. And the Sunday immediately following that series, I preached from Romans 12, what I called the Joyful Church Family, a membership manifesto. And I I preached this from Romans 12. That is now the basis for our detailed membership covenant. It's just a version of Romans 12 is all it is. Near the end of the Joyful Generosity series, which we also turned into a book on the theology of giving, we held what we called Commitment Sunday in which all of you here at that time were given the opportunity to pledge in joy and and in the spirit of love for the gospel and the preached word, a three-year commitment. Over the following two weeks, you turned in your pledges as well as initial very generous gifts just to get us jump-started. And we planned for a couple of weeks later what we called Celebration Sunday to inform you of what was given and pledged. Now, our consultant took all the numbers, our, our annual budget, the size of our congregation and so forth, and he gave us estimates that, that on our celebration Sunday we should probably expect between fifty dollars and $100,000 in an initial gift, which would have been glorious, and that we should expect probably five dollars to $600,000 in commitments over the next three years, which would be a great start for us. So on celebration Sunday, we were a little bit overwhelmed when you, much smaller church then, gave $300,000 all at once and pledges with that gift totaling somewhere in the vicinity of $1.2 million, a little bit more. We told our consultant this and over the phone I could hear his jaw hitting the floor. He said, that's not what usually happens. The goal was to put some money in the bank so that we would have options in, a se- in several years. Our, our building team continued exploring options, everything from new construction. And we, we found out through the experts that the Lord has placed right here in our church that, that just stepping on a piece of ground to think about it costs $1,000 and it's just way too expensive. We thought about refurbishing an existing building. But honestly, our thought was refurbish a really, really nice existing building and we'll just kind of put a little coat of paint on it or something. And we were chugging along at a terrific pace and then COVID hit a year after we began Joyful Generosity. And that's, as one of my mentors used to say, stepping on your air hose in a big way. COVID was expected to be a major financial hit to so many people, and so we officially suspended joyful generosity as we anticipated a hit to our finances and to the church as a whole. And if you recall, exactly the opposite happened. You continued giving to joyful generosity. The Lord continued providing, and in fact, COVID was the impetus for a surge of church growth as we did our best before the Lord to remain faithful to our God in the midst of government oppression and persecution of the church, both in our nation and in countless other nations. You continued giving extremely generously and regularly. When the three years of your commitments ended, the majority of you just kept on giving. And you know the story from there. In December of 2021, just before Christmas, the elders signed papers to purchase this facility with enough leftover cash to completely gut and renovate the sanctuary we're in and the foyer 
to make our worship gathering the number one priority. Dozens and dozens of you volunteered and your, you volunteered your labor while giving generously at the same time. And in less than six months from the time we got the keys to the building, it was transformed into this modest but functional and beautiful place to worship together. And I don't know if you realize this, we haven't even been here a year. We moved in just 11 months ago. We've continued using the funds you've generously given to continue the next phase of development. Our, our work on the sanctuary and foyer was just phase one of about four or five phases that we're praying to see the Lord accomplish. Currently, we're in the time of taking care of some important maintenance and upgrades. You enjoyed the newly refurbished parking lot this morning as an example. But for me as a pastor, and I've spent quite a number of years thinking on and studying what the Scripture says about the motivation of God's people. As I've thought about this, there are some very practical motivations for a facility. And for example, probably no building on earth truly has enough restrooms. I think we would all agree with that. Our facility on Young Street was definitely not the exception to that rule. We were a gathering of worshipers over here and a gathering of people in line for the bathroom over here. It was almost like two churches. When we informed the ladies of the church that our new facility would have more restrooms, they were like, we're in. We're, we're, we're going for it. And by the way, there are more plans to add restrooms to this building too, so you can say your amens and hallelujahs later on that. We're thrilled to have space. We have space to teach our children. We're thrilled to have a, a platform to house a choir, a, a closed campus that feels more like a church home. We know from experience that the fact is that a church that's privileged to own their own facility and create a warm and welcoming environment tends to be more conducive to longevity, tends to be more conducive to guests coming and hearing the gospel of Christ. But in my study and my experience over many years of pastoral ministry, thinking through the issue of motivation, the most important and the highest level motivation has always been the same. And that is to see the kingdom of Christ advanced. There's so many techniques, I suppose, that churches have to use to beg their congregations to help them. We didn't really have to do that. You love the gospel. You know that we live in a dying world. And that God has chosen to use us to advance the kingdom of Christ And if a facility can help us advance the kingdom of Christ, then it's worth all the love, all the labor, all the effort, all the sacrifice we can exert to fulfill that calling together. Now, that very first time around, we felt like we needed to walk very slowly through the process of learning and and growing in in the connection between seeing the kingdom of Christ advanced and the sacrificial giving necessary to be the tools in His hands to accomplish that mission And so we walk slowly through it. I think a lot of us have been in churches where we're disappointed, perhaps, that there's not that successful spiritual connection. They just seem to be constantly asking for money. We didn't want to come across that way. And so it was important to slowly shepherd our way in that direction. It took over a year before we even made it public that we were going to do a capital campaign. It took another five months to set up to begin. It took 14 or 15 sermons to plow the ground of our hearts So from the time we began conversations to the moments we actually collected our first donation was over two years. And your response was overwhelming. 
And now we're at the point we'd like to continue progressing in the next phases of making this facility on White Lane as God-honoring, as useful a place as, as possible to respond to the tremendous blessing, the continued growth he's given. So where are we now? I think the best way to illustrate this, if our joyful generosity campaign before was an effort to convince all of us to get on a rocket to go to the moon together, well, we're on the rocket. We're on the rocket. We're in our new facility. But now we need to be refueled to continue the journey there. You're already convinced. You're on the rocket. You've proven your faithfulness. We relocated 11 months ago. And so we didn't feel like we needed to do this all over again, but rather just revisit and be thankful and remember what the Lord has done. And so we're going to officially restart Joyful Generosity. And for most of you, that's going to be a formality. Like, okay, I'll sign the card that says I'm going to do what I've already been doing. But this time, we want to reinvigorate our determination to do all we can before Christ returns. There's no sign that tells us that the rapture is imminent and we all would like to believe that. But as we look at our world, one thing we can tell, it's dying. We can tell that Romans 1, the twisting of the minds of the lost is at an all-time high level. And so we want to do all we can while the world accelerates towards judgment. Now I'm, I'm going to give you a few more details in a little bit. But just for a few minutes... I'd like to revisit the first series of messages we did on the Church of Jerusalem just to be reminded, to be grounded in what an effective and a God-honoring local church does. We called that series our gift to Jesus and I outlined six gifts or six qualities that we as a church ought to present to our blessed and glorious Savior that we give to Him. And we use the amazing Church of Jerusalem, the very first church, the trailblazing church, persecuted, faithful church who literally stood alone in the world for a time. So what are the six gifts we ought to present to our Savior as a local church? The first gift is a well-ordered church. A well-ordered church. The book of Acts stands alone as the only inspired church history and Acts 1 and 2 sets up the outworking of the ministry of Christ through the apostles. It serves as a bridge between the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament as well as giving the historical background for the rest of the New Testament. By the end of the book of Acts, the gospel has gone to every major part of the Mediterranean world and was continuing to spread like wildfire, and it's never stopped. Not for a moment. After Peter's groundbreaking sermon on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles first and then on all who would believe, Acts 2, verse 41, says this. Acts 2.41 So then those who had received his word were baptized and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. The church was well ordered in two ways. The members knew what to do and the leaders knew what to do. Let me show you first of all that the members knew what to do. The very next verse, Acts 2.42 And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, into the prayers. We can see their top three priorities right here. I'll just give them to you in brief form. Preaching was their first top priority. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to their preaching. The body of material considered authoritative because it was taught by those who were taught by Christ. And now we have the written version in our New Testament. They had the priority of preaching. They had the priority of partnership. 
They prioritized partnership. They devoted themselves to the fellowship and the breaking of bread. Now, some feel that the breaking of bread is referring to sharing the Lord's table, as we'll do today, but that phrase didn't come to be used specifically at the Lord's table until the second century. So the main emphasis here is the fellowship, to share meals, to share ministry, to share lives together. This is a word, the fellowship, which means communion or association together. It's the same word, in fact, used at times to speak of financial contribution. Romans 15, 26 uses the word that way. They were prioritizing preaching, partnership, and praise. They prioritized praise. The new church devoted themselves to the prayers. The definite article means that there was a body of work that all of them as Jews were familiar with that contained prayers and songs to God, inspired by God. Where would we find that? How about Psalms? And so the members knew what to do. They devoted themselves to preaching, to partnership, and to praise. And to my knowledge, they didn't have a membership class. They didn't have to go through a bunch of discipleship to find out here's what to do. They just did it. Phenomenal church. But the members not only knew what to do, the leaders knew what to do. Turn to Acts chapter 6, and we'll bounce back and forth for a while here between Acts 1 and 12. But in Acts 6, you had two groups of leaders. You had lead servants and lead shepherds, and they knew what to do. There were the needs of the church which had to be attended to, and in this case, the feeding of widows. You see the lead servants in Acts 6 verse 2 So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not pleasing to God for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this need. The lead servants knew what to do. Then you have the lead shepherds in verse 4, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word. This is a well-ordered church. There's a second gift that they present that we can as well. A reliant church. A reliant church. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 2. First of all, they relied on the power of Scripture. Verses 17 through 21, Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2 that God has already promised to pour out His Spirit and proclaims that this is the beginning of the fulfillment of parts of this prophecy. And in verse 16, in verses 25 through 28, Paul, or Peter rather, teaches from Psalm 16 to prove the death and resurrection of Christ predicted a thousand years earlier. Verse 27 of chapter 2, Because you will not forsake my soul to Hades, nor give your Holy One over to see corruption, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This is the death and resurrection a thousand years before. Then in verses 34 and 35, Peter shows from Psalm 110 that King David calls his own coming descendant, Jesus Christ, my Lord, who is addressed by God long before his birth. He affirms the deity and the eternal nature of Christ. Look at Acts chapter 3, verse 18. Verse 18, Peter proclaims that the death of Christ was announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets. Verses 22 and 23, Peter cites from Deuteronomy 18 in three different places to prove that God already promised that he would raise up a prophet that that Israel should listen to. Verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. 
To him you shall listen to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Then in verse 25, Peter cites the Abrahamic covenant, specifically referencing Genesis 22.18 and Genesis 12.3. This is the pattern of the church in Jerusalem. They rely on the power of the scriptures. But they also relied on the power of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit would come upon the church, ushering in this new era in which all believers in Christ are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the first thing Jesus said would happen as a result, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. As you read through the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit's mentioned almost 60 times. Clearly, the Holy Spirit is truly the main character in Acts. They were a well-ordered church. They were a reliant church. They relied on the scriptures and on the spirit. The third, they were a praying church. Let's just do a brief survey to show that the instinct from the very beginning of this church, the instinct was to pray. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 1 and we'll just kind of do a little survey here. Even before the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is basically what the faithful were waiting for, Acts 1, verse 14. Acts 1, 14. These all with one accord were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 29, right near the end of the chapter. Acts 4, 29. We see the church already praying for her leaders. This is the church in prayer for her leaders. Acts 4, 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence. I love that prayer. If you ask me, how can you pray for me as your pastor? Grant that Christ's slave would speak God's word with all confidence. That's how to pray for me. Look at Acts seven fifty nine, right near the end of the chapter. Acts seven fifty nine. even as the persecution of the church heated up with the death of the first Martyr, Stephen, his example is stellar. His final act on this earth is to pray. Acts 7, 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he was calling out and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Turn to Acts chapter 12. Peter is arrested and the intention was for him to be executed. James, the brother of John, had just been executed. James is the first apostle to lose his life for the faith, to lose his life for the Lord, for the gospel. The church is in shock. They're grieving the loss of James. This is unthinkable. But what were they doing for Peter? Acts 12, verse 5. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. They were a praying church. It's the fourth gift to present a sacrificial church. A sacrificial church. Turn back to Acts chapter 4. They're a well-ordered church, a reliant church, a praying church, now a sacrificial church. Persecution began almost immediately and it got increasingly worse. And we see a record of several arrests. The first arrest happened in chapter 4. The disciples were imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 3, they're commanded to stop and their response has been the standard of Christian sacrifice ever since. 
chapter 4, 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to hear you rather than God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. The second arrest happens in chapter 5. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 17. But the high priest rose up and those with him, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. They were ordered not to teach in the name of Christ, but they responded, chapter 5, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. Now this time, they're beaten, they're ordered yet again not to preach. In chapter 5, verse 40, their response again sets the tone for how the true believer, how the true church responds to persecution. Verse 41 of chapter 5, this is the gold standard. So they went on their way from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. The third arrest was that of Stephen, and they made an example of him by stoning him to death. The fourth arrest was now church-wide. Many other believers were arrested. Turn with me to chapter 8, verse 1. Now you have an all-out open assault on the church. You have the scattering of believers away from Jerusalem. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, that is Stephen, to death. And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then church meetings started to be raided. Verse 3, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He was delivering them into prison. But the church set a precedent that has continued on throughout the 2,000-year history of the church. Persecution only deepens the commitment of the church to the gospel and to spreading the good news of Christ. Chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about proclaiming the good news of the word. Whoops, backfired, didn't it? They were a sacrificial church. Here's a fifth gift that they gave. They were a loving church. They were a loving church. Turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 44. Acts 2, 44. It's a very unique situation in the church of Jerusalem. The church became essentially an independent new society. This isn't an endorsement or an example of communal living. This is not a redistribution of wealth at the expense of a godly work ethic. It has nothing to do with that. Their generosity and their love for one another was an immediate response to the fact that this new church was now culturally completely at cross purposes to traditional Judaism. Because Judaism encompassed every area of your life your family, your livelihood, your future inheritance, your land ownership, and to reject the legalistic false form of Judaism that had taken hold in Jerusalem was to reject your family, it was to reject your career, your possessions, to literally be, in some cases, made homeless instantly. And so there was an immediate need in the church to help those now suffering for their faith. And so they did. Acts 2.44, and all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were dividing them up with all 
as anyone might have need. Look at chapter 4, verse 32. Chapter 4, verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them was saying that any of his possessions was his own, but for them everything was common. Verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And then you have in verses 36 and 37 the example of Barnabas, who owned a field, who sold it, who brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now listen, this is not like selling your oldest car and saying, yeah, I'll give that $1,000 to the church. This is cashing in your IRA. This is giving your entire retirement. This is giving your inheritance. This is giving your children's inheritance. Sorry, kids. The church needs this more than you do. This is incredible love for each other. But the most important way they loved one another was the fact that they worshiped together. Look back at Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Oh, this was the, this was the glue. This was the bond that brought them together in love, Acts chapter 2, verse 46, that they were daily devoting themselves with one accord, it means in one mind, in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Often in the New Testament, this same word translated with one accord or with one mind is used of the church, that they weren't just physically together, they were of the same heart, the same mind, the same attitude, the same purpose, the same intention. They were a loving church. And the sixth gift, they were an evangelistic church. They were an evangelistic church. They were a church which proclaimed the gospel, the euangelion, the good news. The church never wavered from the precision of the biblical gospel. They were were intensely devoted to Precision. They never preach Jesus wants to be your friend. A short review of just Peter's sermons alone from Acts 2 and 3 would reveal that he affirmed, listen to this, the deity of Christ, the sovereignty of God and salvation, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the supremacy of Christ as Lord, the need for repentance to be saved, the first act of obedience as a believer in Christ being water baptism, He affirmed Jesus is the creator God. He affirmed that Jesus is the object of Old Testament prophecies and the judgment is coming to all who do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Two short sermons, Acts 2 and 3. They were precise. They were characterized by a precision of the gospel. So what do I mean that they were an evangelistic church? How many evangelism programs did they have? Zero. How many outreach projects did they have? Zero. Their evangelism was woven into the fiber of who they were as a church. There was no organized program. Here's what it was. They had one outreach tool. It was the gospel proclaimed by the members and by the leaders. That's it. And they had an expectation of converts to Christ. A huge expectation. Why did they have an expectation? Because the men who were teaching them said, one day we were walking with Jesus and he said this, I will build my church. Now go get some friends and family. 
Let's just chart the progress of the church in Jerusalem. Look at Acts 2.41. Acts 2.41. So then those who received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 2.47. They were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Turn to chapter 4, verse 4. Just kind of drawing a chart here. Chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Chapter 5, verse 14. Chapter 5, verse 14. And more than ever, believers in the Lord were added to their number. Multitudes of men and women. Chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 6, verse 7. You think, okay, maybe there's a lull, but no. And the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem. And great, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Oh, that's when the dominoes start to fall. Wait, now, wait, wait a minute. Weren't you that guy that helped me sacrifice a couple years ago? Yep, I've come to believe in the true Messiah. Look at chapter 9, verse 31. Chapter 9, verse 31 So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria was having peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. It continued to multiply. Chapter 11, verse 21. Chapter 11, verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Verse 24. He was a good man. This is speaking of Barnabas. And full of the Holy Spirit and the faith, and a considerable crowd was brought to the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 24. Chapter 12, verse 24. And this kind of ends the first major section in Acts. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. This is very key. That word multiplied happens over and over again. It wasn't like... You know, when we have a new membership class, and I'm always thankful for this, we have four or five people in there. Praise the Lord, that's glorious. That's addition. This is multiplication. Can you imagine, you small group leaders, that, oh, we have a nice little small group. There's six of us that enjoy fellowshipping. And the next night, there were 12. And, wow, that's pretty neat. And the next night, there were 24. Okay, we're running out of space. Move the couches. Next night, there were 50. What are we going to do? We need to split. We need to divide. Amazing days. The church in Jerusalem proclaimed the gospel and it would continue to spread throughout the known world at this multiplying rate. Persecution didn't stop from A.D. 64 all the way to 313, 250 years or so. Persecution of the church. It was illegal to be a Christian in the Roman Empire and yet the church continued to multiply in 313 Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which decriminalized Christianity in the Roman Empire. And by the way, as soon as Christians weren't having to meet secretly and weren't dying by the thousands, what did local churches start doing? The Edict of Milan, where Constantine issued this official decree that Christianity was now legal and okay, the very same year that that edict came out in the city of Milan, What did the church do there? They pooled their money and built a giant church building. 
The first one we know of in church history. In Rome, over the next decade or so, 20 churches were built. The church planted their flag on this earth with buildings dedicated solely to the worship of Messiah. Jerusalem has set the bar high for us. A well-ordered church, a reliant church, a praying church, a sacrificial church, a loving church, an evangelistic church. I don't know about you, but when I read through Acts 1 through 12, I can't flip the pages fast enough. It's just exciting. It's electric. You know what's more exciting? That it's still happening. And we're part of it. Twelve guys entrusted with the gospel. And now, 2,000 years later, here we are on the other side of the world, gathered by the hundreds, and if we count all the believers in town, by the thousands. If we will follow the model of our mother church, so to speak, the original church of Jerusalem, we may experience those glory days as well. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us as our group of believers that now meets on White Lane? It means taking a step forward to continue the work that the Lord graciously allowed us to begin. A number of months ago, we held a long focus group meeting with our leaders and and a bunch of other members just to kind of get a gauge on what direction we ought to go in terms of what to prioritize in the development of our church campus here. And we basically arrived at three priorities. I think the first one was fairly easy. The overall consensus was that the front of our building looks like an abandoned lumberyard. It's because the front of our building is an abandoned lumberyard, so that makes sense. All all humor aside, though, the fact is, is that just like God cared about the outer appearance of the tabernacle in the wilderness, the outer appearance of the temple in Jerusalem. We care about appearance because this is where we meet with God. And since our mission is to reach beyond our walls, a a welcoming exterior sends a message that we care about what we're doing and therefore a guest can expect us to care about him as well. This will also include redoing the roof on our main building here, doubling our solar panel volume, The front will be redone with landscaping, lighting, some rock work, columns, that sort of thing, a new parking lot. There's a second priority the group came up with that we love to fellowship together and since the Lord has blessed our church with many children, you notice that we didn't redo part of the parking lot between the two buildings because we're going to turn that into a courtyard, a covered courtyard with shade, um, with seating and a new uh, playground for the kids. And we thought, well, this playground circa 1971 uh, no kids gonna want to be on there they're they're out there burning the skin off their fingers <laughs> in 100 degree weather it's okay i can do it mom and the, and so it's it's a great place for them to gather and for us to fellowship as a body so we'll put a courtyard in and then the third priority we're, we're blessed with our highly useful activity center we're going to do some upgrades on the activity center and and work on it and we're going to try to connect with the courtyard, make one uh, bigger connection between the two buildings. There's a lot more work to be done well beyond those three small goals. Our thanks to all of you who park in the dirt. We appreciate that. But that's what our building team is determined to be next. We'll have some fun architectural drawings for you in the next couple of months. But all you have to do is look around you right in this room to see what those who were in charge of design have done. And we're thankful for them. In this next week, you should receive some communication, but kind of in short form, here's what's happening. Next week, I'm going to preach one more time on Joyful Generosity Revisited. 
We'll review a biblical theology of giving. That giving is from a heart of love for Christ, for the work of the gospel that goes beyond my life. That we don't give out of whatever extra pennies we have. We give sacrificially, just like the church of Jerusalem did. A Sunday or two after that, we'll have our official commitment Sunday. Our time to offer our prayerful commitments as well as the first opportunity to bring an extra gift to add fuel to the rocket, so to speak. Our, our family is planning our extra gift right now. A couple of Sundays after that, we'll enjoy Celebration Sunday. We'll, we'll have a meal together. We'll announce what the Lord has chosen to do through this small body of believers to help further His kingdom. Now, we don't have drawings to show you yet. And to be honest with you, I'm okay with that. Generally, those are used to try to convince uh, lukewarm church members to give money, and we don't have a lot of lukewarm church members that I'm aware of, so I'm not concerned about it. They're in process. They'll, we want to do a good job on them. I don't think you need an, an architect zip lining in here with a cape on saying, here's the drawing to give you emotional tugs at your heart. But just as a reminder, you successfully did three years of joyful generosity without one single visual. And the only visuals we ever put up was, this is what the Lord could do. And we didn't know what was going to happen. That goes back to my original question. What is the highest motivation for a local church to urge itself forward by God's help, to plant itself deeply in a community and to reach its impact beyond the walls of the church to do everything we possibly can? Not a desire for a nicer look, not the convenience of a more usable facility, not the good feeling of having a church home we can be proud of. The highest motivation is to see the kingdom of Christ advance. That's it. That's it. And our mission has never changed. It's never wavered. We've never altered from it. We've never gone astray. Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is why we're still on this earth. This is why we're here. And for my part, as one of the leaders, for your part as a minister of the gospel, as a member, I want to join with the Apostle Paul in what he said immediately following Colossians 1.28. I want to be the type of church that says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. And what a glorious day it will be when we as a church body, I don't know how this is going to work, but since the Lord Jesus gathered churches in, in Revelation 2 and 3, I would assume that there will be a, a glorious day of reward when, okay, all who have ever been a part of Grace Bible Church gather over here. What a glorious day it will be when he tells us, well done. That's what we want to hear. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. There's only one reason we do this. Because God, before the foundation of the world, knowing that you would rebel against Him, chose you for salvation. And He chose to send His one and only, His dearest Son, to die the death that you deserved, to receive the wrath that you deserved. And so our center, our focus is always Christ. Him we proclaim. And so we celebrate that together, that sacrifice. Let's pray together and let's remember the Lord's sacrifice as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Our Father, we 
humbly thank you for your grace. We are wretched sinners. We are unrighteous. We are rotten to the core. And yet by your grace, your kindness, your mercy, before the foundation of the world, you chose us for salvation. There's no reason in all the Bible given except for your love. We did nothing to merit that love. We did nothing to earn your love. We did nothing to gain your attention. The only thing we gained was your wrath. And so we gather together at the table of Christ. We gather for the Lord's Supper to remember the body and the blood of our dear Savior who gave his life for us. Amen.